Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to panel three of Justice Thomas's 30-year legacy on the court, originalism, constitutional interpretation, and stare decisis. Please welcome our host, John Malcolm, Heritage's Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government and Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Well, welcome back, especially to our virtual attendees who had a little bit of a break there. Uh, we're gonna get right to our next uh, panel. We are fortunate to have as a moderator, Judge Greg Katsis of the DC Circuit. Uh, before Judge Katsis was on the bench and when he was in private practice, he argued over 75 appeals, including three cases at the high court. Uh, he also served as the head of the civil division and the acting associate attorney general uh, at the Justice Department during the Bush administration. And of course, as a deputy uh, White House counsel uh, during the Trump administration. Uh, he clerked for Judge uh, Edward Becker on the Third Circuit and then he clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. Judge Katsas, it's your, up over to you. Sorry, I'm a little bit uh, out of breath and disheveled here. Um, for those of you who know the DC Circuit, it might not shock you to know that my 1.5 hours of argument this morning went for over 3.5. <laughs> but I made it. Um, I'm thrilled to be here uh, moderating this T clerk panel. Um, on originalism, constitutional interpretation, and stare decisis. Uh, given the panel's composition, I'm just going to introduce people in the order in which they clerked for the justice. Very diplomatic. So, <laughs> so leading, right? So leading off is Chris Landau. Uh, he is the St. Andrew of Thomas Clerks, um, the first called. Uh, he was the justice's first clerk at the D.C. Circuit in April of 1990, and then the justice's first clerk at the Supreme Court 30 years ago this month in October 1991, and was absolutely uh, essential in helping the justice get both chambers set up and get everything um, off to a great start. In between his CT clerkships, uh, Chris also clerked for fellow named Antonin Scalia. You might have heard of him. And after his clerkships, um, he became one of the country's premier appellate and Supreme Court litigators uh, at Kirkland and Ellis and then Quinn Emanuel. And from 2019 to 2021, he was our ambassador to Mexico. Greg Maggs um, was a co-clerk with Chris and me in OT91. Uh, joined us after clerking for Judge Joe Sneed on the Ninth Circuit and Justice Kennedy at the Supreme Court. Um, after clerking, uh, he became distinguished law professor at GW and in that capacity taught many courses uh, with the justice. He served for almost three decades in the Army Reserves uh, and he is now a judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Eric Jaffe clerked for Justice Thomas in OT 1996, after a clerkship with my colleague Doug Ginsburg and a stint at Williams and Connolly. Um, he is a founding partner in the firm Sheer Jaffe 
and like Chris has some three decades of experience as an appellate and Supreme Court litigator. Last but not least, uh, Jim Ho, clerked for the justice in OT 2005. After a clerkship with Jerry Smith on the Fifth Circuit, a stint at DOJ early in the Bush 43 administration, uh, and service as general counsel on Senate Judiciary Committee subcommittees. Uh, after clerking, he became a partner at Gibson Dunn in Dallas. He also served as Solicitor General of Texas, and he is now on the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Uh, we're a little bit front-loaded on early clerks for the boss, but we're, we will try to cover all 30 years um, as best as we can. This panel um, is about methodology, um, how one should do constitutional interpretation, uh, among other things. Um, if you're thinking about the best way to do that, the two main competing approaches. One, of course, is originalism. Randy Barnett gives a pretty good working definition that originalism is um, a school of thought under which the meaning of the Constitution is fixed when the constant was fixed when the constitution was enacted or ratified that's a proposition about how language works uh, and then that that fixed meaning should constrain what interpreters do in deciding cases in the present day which is of course a normative claim about how we all as judges should decide cases um, of course justice thomas is the world's leading practitioner of originalism. He has said things like this dozens, if not hundreds of times. I'll just take one example just to put something concrete on the table. In the McDonald case, in the context of addressing the 14th Amendment, he said that the Constitution should be interpreted, now his words, consistent with the public understanding at the time of ratification. Our other topic um, on this panel is stare decisis, which is the question how precedent impacts or constrains constitutional interpretation. It's a critical question for modern originalists like Justice Thomas because, of course, the Supreme Court has been decidedly unoriginalist since at least the 1930s. Um, if you look, if you survey the constitutional law of today, Maybe you'll find significant strands of originalism in the Second Amendment and the Confrontation Clause, but for the most part, most of the clauses are encrusted with decades of living constitutionalist precedents. So if you think originalism is right as, a, as an original matter, but you also think that precedent constrains judges, there's really not a whole lot you might be able to do to operationalize the theory. So that's the, um, that's the challenge for stare decisis. The canonical formulation of stare decisis is that it's a doctrine of prudence, that you need specific justifications to overrule cases above and beyond simply the cases being wrongly decided, and that that inquiry is a multi-factor balancing test encompassing things like the quality of the precedent, the age of the precedent, intervening developments, reliance interests, etc. Justice Thomas, a couple of years ago in a case called Gamble, set forth a somewhat different um, 
less expansive view of stare decisis. He said, and again, I'm going I'm just going to quote him once. He said, if the court encounters a decision that's demonstrably erroneous, which is one that's not a uh, doesn't rest on a permissible interpretation of text, the court should correct the error regardless of whether other factors support overruling. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. Obviously, he's giving less weight to precedent than the traditional inquiry. Um, he is giving some. He's, he requires demonstrable error as opposed to error. The other interesting thing is he's constitutionalizing aspects of the doctrine limitations on the doctrine. He says that the Constitution specifies the binding law, which is constitutional law, not what judges say about it. And in that sense, he might be moving things away from a prudential inquiry and maybe moving things a little bit in the opposite of a, a recent suggestion from Justice Kavanaugh that the Constitution constitutionalizes not limits on the doctrine, but the basic doctrine as an aspect of how judges decide cases under Article Three. All right, um, I've said enough. We, our panelists have chosen not to do opening statements, so we are gonna um, jump right in, um, and I will start posing some questions, but I hope the discussion just takes off and I can sit back and catch my breath here. So, um, so the first one is, I, I gave you a very um, simple definition of originalism, but there are a bunch of different variations on what one might look for. Original intent, original meaning. Um, this is something Greg Max has written and thought a lot about. So Greg, why don't you give us a primer on exactly what it is that the boss is looking for? Oh, well, thank you, Greg. And let me just uh, start by saying thank you to the Heritage Foundation and the Gray Center for putting this together and, and inviting me. It's a, it's a great honor. Um, in terms of uh, originalism, uh, there's been a long-standing uh, disagreement. Once you get past the idea of whether we're going to follow the original meaning or not as to how to define the original meaning. For example, is it uh, what the framers originally intended, uh, the framers in, in Philadelphia in 1787, uh, is it what the ratifiers of the, uh, of the Constitution at the state constitutional conventions thought it meant? Or is it uh, what the public would have thought, what, what the original objective uh, meaning is? And uh, uh, it's somewhat of a theoretical debate because often the meanings aren't different. But the sources that you look at uh, in trying to determine these meanings may differ. So for example, if you're trying to figure out what the framers of the Constitution actually intended it to mean, you might look at the records of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, if you're looking at what the ratifiers thought it meant, you might look at the debates in the state ratifying conventions, and you might look at, say, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers and other arguments at the time about whether we should ratify it or not. Uh, where, by contrast, if you're looking at the original public meaning or original objective meaning, as it's sometimes called, uh, you might look at sources such as legal treatises, dictionaries. Uh, currently, the uh, uh, trend is to look at corpus linguistics, just how were words used uh, at that time. And uh, for many years, Justice Thomas did not specifically articulate what uh, type of original meaning he thought was controlling. Uh, but we did see, uh, if you just saw the movie, uh, uh, the clips from the movie over the lunch hour, uh, in the McDonald case, he specifically said it's the original public meaning, which would suggest that uh, sources such as dictionaries from the founding era and other 
sort of objective public documents as opposed to what the framers uh, subjectively thought or the ratifiers thought uh, uh, would be the most uh, relevant. And you can see that in many of his cases. Justice Thomas probably cites dictionaries more than uh, any other justice. Uh, in, in, in the United States v. Lopez, he cites dictionaries for the meaning of commerce. In Kilo v. New London, he, he cites dictionaries for the use of, uh, for the meaning of the word use. Uh, in Bayes v. Reese, uh, he looks at dictionaries for the use of, uh, for the meaning of the word cruel. Um, in Carpenter of the United States, he looks at dictionaries for the use of the meaning of the word uh, search. Uh, and I think this is uh, pretty consistent. Uh, that said, he also does look at other sources, and particularly in his older opinions, he seems to focus on many other kinds of sources. So uh, during the morning program, there was a lot of discussion of the term limits v. Thornton case, and that relies very heavily, say, on the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist uh, responses uh, to them as opposed to dictionaries. I think it's also true that this method of using dictionaries works best where you have a lot of specific words, say like Article One, Section 8, you're trying to figure out what the meanings are or the, or the Bill of Rights. Uh, in Article 2, where we're talking about the scope of the President's powers, it's a much more structural kind of question, and it doesn't usually help to uh, look up what it means to be the Chief Executive or the Commander-in-Chief so much as it is to look at the structure. So uh, that's what I would say is, is the answer. Uh, one idea we were kicking around a little bit as the panelists were um, discussing topics is the possibility that the nature of the inquiry might vary depending on the underlying clause and whether it's open-ended or closed-ended. Um, Eric, you had brought that up, so uh, is that something you want to elaborate yeah, on? absolutely. I mean, I think it's sort of interesting that, you know, a lot of people, I think, falsely equate original public meaning with how would the people of the time have applied the, the particular constitutional provision in that era, as opposed to how they would have understand, understood the language. Uh, and, and that comes into focus on certain language that is not fixed in, an, in its nature, unusual, cruel and unusual punishment. What, they didn't say unusual today, they just said unusual, and one might reasonably understand that to be open-ended and forward-looking, that things could become unusual or, or, or not, uh, as the case may be. Um, there are other instances, uh, due process. I mean, due process may have had a, a content at the time, but the concept of due process might have been a broader concept of what is just and right, uh, giving some open-endedness to certain clauses, even privileges and immunities. Even the Ninth Amendment, for example, suggests that there's a certain open-endedness and that while there's a fixed meaning to language, the language itself may not fixate on a result. It may fixate on a process, it may fixate on an overall conception. Uh, things like the judicial power, similarly, could be sort of something that gives open-endedness. And so I find it interesting uh, in terms of the debates we have even within the originalist camps uh, and how Justice Thomas deals with those. One thing that always came, I found interesting is that he often would look to public documents and newspapers and things like that for meeting. And you see that's reflected now in corpus linguistics, which you're looking to much more public and common materials to see what the public actually would have thought, particularly the public that might not have been having, had a law library with a bunch of dictionaries in it, right? So you're looking at things the public really read rather than the things that they theoretically could have read. Uh, and I think that's 
a useful thing. You know, much as we, uh, we of the originalist camp or of the textualist camp uh, tend to deride legislative history, that's different than saying you can use historical documents like that to show meaning, not to show intent, which is the different, uh, the distinction that Judge Maggs made, but to show meaning. Uh, and so I think Justice Thomas does this. The example that always came to mind for me was in the Camps Newfoundland case, which was uh, done in my term, 1896. Uh, he wrote a dissent talking about the meaning of the import-export clause. And, and much of the sources cited there were newspaper articles uh, about what were imports and exports, even though perhaps more modernly and maybe even some definitions might have had a, a narrow or different definition of imports, the common understanding meant imports and exports between states, not necessarily only between countries. So all of those things I find interesting. I find the justice, his, his dealing with this over time, uh, I think it's, it's evolving. He takes things, he plays with things, he looks at things. I think it's all an inquiry into what is ultimately correctly, what was the meaning as understood at the time? How would people have understood the words, not what result would they have come to? Eric, if the meaning is fixed but open-ended, and forward-looking, and you sharply distinguish meaning from, let's just say, ex expected application, to use a term, a jargon term in this area. How do you stop the slippery slope down to you know, the equivalent of when you're deciding an Eighth Amendment case, you just you apply evolving standards of decency? I mean, whether you describe it as the standard is evolving or the standard is forward-looking, so judges look to the present. Seems like those are pretty similar. Well, one would be objective. If you think unusual is a factual question, is it or is it not unusual? You would have some measure of usualness. Is it is it one out of a thousand? That would be unusual. If it's one out of a million, that would be unusual. Is it 50-50? That's not terribly unusual. So yes, there would be evolving standards of decency, but there wouldn't be the evolving standards of decency in the judge's mind. It would be some objective external measure if you thought that's what unusual meant. Uh, so the slippery slope wouldn't exist vis-a-vis -vis judges running rampant, though of course it would allow for some evolution in concepts like unusual, like what is and isn't unusual, and potentially what is and isn't cruel. So your point is it wouldn't be what was unusual in 1789 or 1790? Not necessarily. I'm merely positing this as, as a plausible reading of the word unusual, even from that time period's understanding. All right, but suppose unusual is you know something rejected in X number of states and we come to the woke present and X number of states have rejected capital punishment. Does that make capital punishment unconstitutional, notwithstanding the overwhelming structural and historical arguments that, of course, it's constitutional? If you think that it is not a fixed standard, that the meaning at the time was not intended and understood to be a fixed standard, then yes, that's exactly what it would mean. Uh, it, mean it would mean that eventually, if all but one state decided capital punishment was, was wrong, and, ba and banned it, it would become unusual. It might not be cruel, by the way. It would just be unusual at that moment. One could debate about the cruelty, and I think you're probably right that it would be hard to imagine it was cruel given but the If cruelty works the same way, maybe you could well, have the same ratchet. If it does, but again, that's just the question that has to be asked, and we shouldn't shy away from the possibility that the answer might be yes. We should just ask the question, look at the history, look at the language, and come to the answer. I'm merely saying that just because we have fixed notions of language doesn't mean that all language has fixed notions of outcome. Okay. Um, Chris or Jim, anything you want to? 
I think there's some, I mean, I, again, I think some language, some parts of the Constitution are very, very specific. Like the president has to be 35 years old. Uh, you know, that that's not going to evolve to say, well, you know, standard of living was different then. And so now we're going to say the president, you know, has to be 45 years old. I mean, I think that's something that everybody would agree. You, you just, the language answers that. I do think that there are some parts of the Constitution that are more open-ended, like uh, a search must be reasonable. Uh, and... You know, by definition, you know, you can look at the definitions, uh, uh, but, you know, that, that does seem like it's a more open-ended uh, provision. And the question then is what guideposts do you use for reasonableness? I mean, I guess one legitimate guidepost would be what was reasonable at the original time. Another would be, you know, what is reasonable in our day. And then the question is how do you measure that by uh, some objective uh, indicium? I, I think the, at the end of the day, the question is basically, how do you do your job as a justice? And, and I think Justice Thomas has always had the view that he is not there to impose his own views. And so I think whether it's originalism or textualism, he is always looking for something that says, I don't want to impose my own views. I want somebody to give me something that I can look to and say objectively, I have legitimacy because I have an objective standard of, what I'm, of how I do my job. And again, I think originalism is, is a tool that, that gives legitimacy to his work or textualism or, again, I think sometimes the, 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 the boundaries of these doctrines become very difficult. But I think at, at base, the question is, what is a justice's job or what is a judge's job under our democratic system? And I think Justice Thomas's great contribution is that he, probably more than anybody, has made it clear that he doesn't want to be a philosopher king. He wants people to give him uh, objective answers for how he can do his job uh, you know, objectively and not based on his own personal preferences. And so I think you know, these are all useful means to an end, and, and they're good conversations to have. I think in most cases, you know, whether it's original public meaning or the framers' intent or the, the, what the language meant, I mean, you know, they wind up coming out the same way. But again, yeah, I think Greg uh, Maggs had a very interesting point that you know, some of the provisions of the Constitution are very uh, are, are not written in the sense that the executive power, what is in the executive power, you, you cannot answer that question within the four corners of the document. You do have to look at some external source. And so the question is, you know, what is that external source? I mean, you know, <clears throat> does the power to appoint encompass the power to remove? The Constitution doesn't speak to removal. So how do you address that question? And, you know, I think for Justice Thomas, uh, he is always looking for ways to prevent judges from running amok with their powers. I mean, Lord knows we've seen this, uh, you know, uh, you know, go on for long enough. And, and Greg, I think you really hit the biggest question of all, which is how to be a purist in a fallen world. I mean, how do you, uh, in a world where, you know, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, but all of a sudden you have a First Amendment case based on what the local school board in, you know, uh, Pittsburgh, you know, did. Uh, and, and, you know, how, how do you even start to analyze that case if you, you know, if you say you're a textualist and, and, and you are and you want to do it right, in a sense, you know, if you don't at least follow incorporation, uh, you know, you're, you're just going to be marginalized in all these cases and, and the court goes on without you. And, and I think to me that was always the biggest struggle 
to you know how you draw lines in the area and say, well, I'll I'll accept this precedent, but not that precedent. And and again, those are ones where I think Justice Thomas is trying to do his job as he sees best, but it is very difficult uh, to do. I mean, again, I, so I think to me that's the hardest of all these questions to answer in terms of methodology. It, it is a stare decisis question ultimately, and I think that's something that he struggles with, frankly. I, I think you, I'm not sure there is a neat and easy resolution to that struggle. Jim. So one way, I think it's been a wonderful dialogue and I'll do my level best to add something minimally valuable. Um, you know, one way that I would sort of summarize and simplify what Chris has said, and I've, I think I agree with every word, is that essentially Justice Thomas, when he signed up to be a judge, when he swore an oath to be a judge, he wants to, in fact, be a judge. And that means not uh, simply figuring out what he personally would want to do as a voter, or frankly, what he thinks uh, the, the pub public pressure or pressure from certain parties or for consist certain constituents groups, what they would want to impose. He simply wants to be a judge, and that means figuring out what law he's supposed to apply to a particular uh, dispute and, and apply that. Uh, we've, we've had, obviously, a great exchange about the sort of various different strands of originalism uh, between Eric and, and, and Greg. Let, let me maybe take a slightly different take and say, you know, to the extent that, you know, what makes Justice Thomas stick out as a unique originalist is that he's a fearless originalist. And specifically, to paraphrase what he said during his confirmation hearing, he is a judge and a man who deigns to think for himself. And so one way in which that manifests itself is that he looks for original meaning everywhere, including, most interestingly to me, where everybody else has essentially stopped looking. And there are examples and example, example uh, 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 where he where essentially everybody is sort of just, for whatever reason, focused on uh, other areas, he's going, to look, he's going to actually get back to the original meeting when everybody else has stopped asking. So, you know, take, I'll just use three examples. Uh, Holder, Holder v. Hall, where he basically went back to uh, trying to figure out, you know, where is this vote dilution claim theory coming from? Everybody just assumes it exists. He wants to ask, what is the original meaning of the Voting Rights Act? Uh, the Establishment Clause in Elk Grove, uh, Unified School District versus Newdow, and in other cases, uh, he asks, "Does the Establishment Clause is it even appropriate to be ha to be having those discussions in a state or local government context uh, uh, through the through the doctrine of corporation?" Uh, I think there was some allusion earlier today about uh, uh, his wanting to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan, the First Amendment, uh, and how it applies to libel law. He said that in McKee versus Cosby, and and in, uh, I believe another later case as well. And so he's willing to ask the original meaning question when everybody else has stopped doing it. And I think your point about sorry decisis is extremely well taken. You know, the notion that you're going to be an originalist in these cases, but not over here, that really isn't originalism at all. You're just deciding, well, originalism works here because it gets the, you to the result that you want, so you apply it. Same thing with stare decisis. Uh, whatever theory of stare decisis one wants to have, and you know, we can have a legitimate discussion about that. The one thing, the, the one standard it has to pass is it has to be a principled theory of a stare decisis. It can't be, oh, I like this precedent, so I'm going to apply it. I don't like this precedent, so I'm going to be less oriented. That's the one thing that no principled judge could possibly, should possibly accept. And certainly that's, uh, I think, how Justice Thomas has uh, essentially encapsulated his whole uh, theory of, of, of judging. I think you're, I think one of the reasons that we're here today celebrating Justice Thomas is just as you said, Jim, that you know, he will go back to basics, 
in a case. And there's so many areas. It's, it's basically every case now. The Constitution or the original statute is here. And then there's all these barnacles that have grown up over the year. And typically a case comes and there's a circuit split on you know, interpretation of this barnacle, right? And so in a sense, you can't really answer that question in a very meaningful way unless you kind of go back to the original thing. And sometimes there's some real problems in the original thing. And I think he's somebody who's willing to say, hey, you know, time out, everybody. You know, even if it's not presented by the parties sometime, because the parties are taking the law as it is too. And, you know, I think he recognizes that the Supreme Court has an important function of calling out issues for, for re-examination. And, you know, because the lower courts can't really do that, right? I mean, you know, I guess, you know, you could try, but it's certainly the Supreme Court, it's kind of appropriate for people to start asking how did we get to this barnacle? Or at some point, you get past the logical extreme of something. And he's always willing to, in a sense, be very candid. And I think that's a very valuable uh, tool. I think so many judges feel like they have to make excuses. And they won't overrule something uh, because it looks bad for the judiciary to overrule in their mind. And it says they made a mistake. I think he'd rather say, look, let's just be over with it. Let's admit that was a mistake. Let's be candid about this. Let's let's be truth tellers. Let's not try to. We don't have to become complicit and cover up. We made a wrong turn somewhere, and I think that's the kind of person he is. And there's a lot of value in that. Can I, I pick? Okay. Oh, oh, I was just going to pick up on uh, on Chris's barnacle metaphor. Uh, Justice Thomas had a very similar uh, view, but a slightly different metaphor. He uh, uh, he gave a speech when he won the Learned Hand Award that the New York State Bar Association uh, gave, and uh, uh, he he analogized. Uh, precedent to uh, a train where he said every time we have a new case we're adding another car to the end of the train and we just keep adding another car to the end of the train and pretty soon we forget who's driving this train where did it come from where's it going we're just we just keep putting a new car on the back of that train and one of the things he likes to do is find out where things come from and uh, Eric pointed out uh, earlier uh, that you know we've got the evolving standards of decency uh, uh, test uh, for cruel and unusual punishment. And uh, in a course that Justice Thomas uh, uh, teaches, um, a student wrote a paper on where that came from. And it didn't have anything to do with the death penalty. Uh, it had to do with uh, the collateral consequence of a court-martial. Uh, in North Africa in World War II, a soldier got fed up, walked off post, got cold and hungry, turned around, uh, was arrested, was tried uh, for desertion, two hours of desertion, uh, was punished. Uh, finished the war, went home. Many years later, he applied for a passport to take a business trip uh, to Canada, only to discover he was no longer a U.S. citizen because there was a statute that said, if you desert in the face of the enemy during wartime, uh, you lose your citizenship. And went up to the Supreme Court, and that's where they, it wasn't even a habeas corpus case. It was a case to get a passport. Uh, and uh, that's where they came up with the evolving standards of decency test, which you know, ultimately ended up with the uh, Supreme Court, at least for a while, holding that the death penalty was unconstitutional. And where is that train going to, and, and where did it come from? I, I want to pick up also on the same thing Chris mentioned about the barnacles or the trains or however you want to call it. It was one of the most foundational experiences I actually had with the justice early on, where, you know, I'm some smart alecky young person who thought I was really good at the law, and I write a bench memo. Something's haven't changed. Yeah, well, <laughs> not at all. I'm not young anymore, though. <laughs> I'm just not young anymore. The rest of it's still true. Um, and, you know, I give this wonderful analysis of precedent and this and that, and he just sort of looks at me and says, yeah, but like, 
50 years ago, we, we sort of screwed up this one precedent, and all of that doesn't make any sense in light of that. And I'm like, I was floored. I was literally floored at that moment that he had sort of stepped back and away from what we had been taught in law school and told me, you need to look deeper. Uh, and it was really, uh, it, it was both an educational experience in the clerkship and for, for the rest of my legal career, quite frankly, of not taking things at face value, not accepting the given wisdom, but looking back and seeing if it makes sense. Uh, it was... It was, it was glorious. I have a similar anecdote that actually ties out to the train metaphor that, that, you know, three of us here were Justice Thomas's law clerks his first term on the court. And obviously, he was dealing with a lot of these questions that very first term. I mean, it was really the first sitting, I think, where all of a sudden you have to, you're faced with these very real questions. And so I remember there was one particular case and, and um, you know, we spent a long time among all the clerks and the justice discussing this case. And, you know, he went off to conference. And, uh, you know, we always peppered him with questions as soon as he came back from conference, like, how did it go? And, you know, what was the vote on, on, on this or that? And, you know, it, the Supreme Court does it, I think, differently than the D.C. Circuit and that most other circuit, most other courts that they go in order of seniority. So he was actually the last person to speak up. Uh, you know, the, the chief justice starts and it goes it goes uh, it, by order of seniority. Is it still the way in the D.C. Circuit that it goes? We, in do, the we do the opposite. Junior, yeah. junior judge junior, goes that, first. That's what I think. It, how is it in the Fifth Circuit? Okay. But in the Supreme Court, for some reason, it goes senior to junior. And so imagine eight people had spoken on this case before it got to brand new Justice Thomas. It was his first sitting. And so he came back to Chambers and said, okay, that case, it's 9-0 against the position that we discussed. It was at 9-0. It's like, Buddy, that train had left the station. And, you know, but then, you know, he slept on it, and he came in the next day and says, you know something? I, I, I don't think that was right. I think I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution and, 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 and do my best to do what's right. And, you know, I'm going to try to write uh, a dissent along the, you know, write my views along the way that we thought. And, you know, and he did that. Um, I've, I've told this story in public before, but to me, the mo one of the most amazing judicial performances I've ever seen was his performance in that first sitting. So he's just gotten to the Supreme Court. He's 43 years old. He's, he's been through hell. He's trying to get the chambers set up, right? And he, he went into conference, and he was the sole dissenter in three cases from the first sitting. And I can say all this in public because it's reflected in Justice Blackmun's papers, which are now public, but one of them came out eight to one, one of them came out seven to two with Justice Scalia flipping his vote to go with Justice Thomas, and one of them came out five to four with Justice Scalia, the chief, and Justice Kennedy flipping their votes consistent with the Thomas position. And it, it, you know, a lot of us ask ourselves things, questions about, you know, tactics. Is it worth it? Will I burn too much capital? Will it take too much time to fight this fight? Has the train left the station? He didn't ask any of that. He just asked himself, what's the right answer on the law and went with it and um, you know, maybe he slept overnight on one case, but other than that, he never batted an eyelash over those votes. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I think he has has had such an impact. I mean, you kind of, 
I remember I've been on panels that kind of discuss, you know, who was the more influential justice, Justice Brennan or Justice Scalia? And Justice Brennan was a master at kind of compromising and getting five votes. You know, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas are at the other extreme, and, and they're not interested. Justice Thomas is not trying to twist anybody's arm. Nobody bothers to come to Justice Thomas's chambers to try to twist his arm because people know that he calls them as he sees them. And, you know, there's, the, the, you know, it, it is an interesting debate. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to which is ultimately, in terms of the long-term effect on the law, more effective. I mean, Justice Brennan certainly accomplished a lot uh, by his kind of cajoling and, and willingness to make deals. Uh, but I think maybe the, the, the Scalia-Thomas view over the long run, it comes up with a very coherent theory of constitutional interpretation that, you know, my sense is that there's a lot of power in that too. One is more results-based and one is more methodology-based. And, and ultimately, I mean, the results were very important. They've changed our country in very significant ways. But, but the methodology matters a lot, too. Greg, one, one detail that uh, you didn't add was after all those cases came out, the uh, headlines read, Justice Thomas just does what Justice Scalia right. tells him to <laughs> yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think on, on the who's the most important justice, you know, I, I think uh, Justice Thomas is a lot like Ronald Reagan is to political candidates. Everybody says, you know, if they want to get a certain class of votes, I'm the Ronald Reagan in this campaign. I'm, I'm the Ronald Reagan candidate. Um, and I think whether Justice Thomas has, you know, we, we talked about how many wins they had, and Adam Mortara had the question of how many NFL highlights, and there are individual cases. But I would say the biggest win is when you look at new nominees, they're not compared. Who are they compared to? They're compared to Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia. Uh, is Brett Kavanaugh going to be like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia? Is Neil Gorsuch going to be like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia? Is Amy Coney Barrett going to be like them? And I think that is the most significant influence uh, that they've had because of their principal jurisprudence. I, talking about some of these procedural issues on his influence on procedural, I want to go back to the precedent question for a bit because, you know, as, as I think several people have mentioned, his limitation on where precedent does and doesn't go in is, is it demonstrably wrong? But to me, I hear echoes of Chevron in that. I constantly hear echoes of Chevron. Well, what if it's not demonstrably wrong? What if the historical record is ambiguous, or the language is ambiguous, or there's conflicting evidence? Uh, what do you do then? And, and that's sort of the more interesting thing about how do you deal with precedents that you're not just going to put your foot down and say, it's clearly wrong, I can't abide it. But maybe, uh, maybe there's a palpable argument one way or the other. And at least in my experience, what he tried to do is steer it back as best he could to something closer to what he thought the right answer was, even if it wasn't the definitive absolute answer. And I think that's a, a, an equally good methodology for dealing with those spaces in between, if you will, is get it back to the logic and the sense of, of the overall structure, even if you can't say for sure it means x. Let's talk, uh, so I was going to also say on the, uh, the demonstrably wrong, I mean, the alternative is the Supreme Court's current doctrine, which is a multi-factor test where all the factors have been established by precedent, which is, so we have our test for stare decisis where all the factors are made by precedent. And, you know, you're, you're comparing, I think, what, what was Justice Scalia's statement? You're comparing whether a stick is long or a, or a stone is heavy. Uh, and uh, it doesn't, doesn't really make that much sense. And uh, if you're on a lower court, you have to follow the Supreme Court's doctrine on precedent. When you look at these, you look at these <laughs> factors, and it's like, well, I don't know what they mean. I actually think you're giving the court too much credit. I mean, I would accept. I would accept. 
really any, let me rephrase. I would at least respect, I accept as a different term, obviously, but I would at least <laughs> respect any theory of stare decisis that was applied consistently. If it's a multi-factor test, actually use it every time. I mean, just, you know, I'll just take two cases. Compare the analysis of stare decisis in Casey to the analysis of stare decisis in Obergefell. It's, it's not comparable. Like, they, they apply stare decisis when you want to, and they don't when they don't. That's, that's not a principle. That's basically, that's not judging. It's something else. So, so to the judges on the panel, I'm curious as to, if Justice Thomas doesn't need to follow precedent, why do you? I, I don't quite understand why, why it's any more binding on you if it's wrong, if you think it's demonstrably wrong, than it is on him. Because I sit on an in, in what the Constitution describes as an inferior court, which implies a, a hierarchical relationship. But I assume the hierarchy only trumps if they're right, that at the end of the day, the Constitution is the superior to all of it. And at some point, you took your oath to the Constitution, not to the Supreme Court. Just throwing it out there. I figure <laughs> if Thomas, no, no, if if Thomas you're getting can toss it, this crowd, you're in trouble. No, no, we're not going to answer that question. <laughs> this, is, this is a wonderful debate. I suspect Greg does this. I've done this with, I think, every generation of clerks that I've ever had is this constant question of, well, you don't swear an oath to the, to, to the Supreme Court. You swear an oath to the Constitution. It, it's a great point, and it's a theory that literally not a single lower court, uh, lower court judge in the country uh, is willing to cross. And I think it's because of this essentially hierarchical system of the judiciary. It, if nothing else, just think of it as futile. You'd just be banging your head against the Supreme Court constantly some you. So if nothing else, it's just a waste of time. Fair enough. Uh, I actually, I think one of the great consequences of Justice Thomas in calling out precedent to be ch challenged, even in dissents uh, typically, is that he's encouraged lower court judges to do much the same. They recognize their inferior power, uh, and, but nonetheless write an opinion that says, I'm sticking with precedent, but the precedent's wrong. And, and Jim's done one or two of those. One or two, <laughs> here and there. Well, and, and I mean, there's there's that, but there's also uh, something that I think uh, Judge Bumate and uh, others I, I've tried to follow as well is this principle of you know we want to be on the lower courts, inferior courts, uh, as originalist as we can to the maximum extent possible, consistent with a faithful understanding of Supreme Court precedent. That's the most that we can do to be faithful to the Constitution uh, under this hierarchy, uh, and we're you know we just. Every day, wait for further direction from the from the nine. Let's talk a little bit about how Justice Thomas's approach has changed or or not changed over time. The evolving standards of CT. Um, we have uh, sixty percent of the clerkship class of OT ninety one represented. So. Um, let me start by just inviting any th thoughts or anecdotes or cases from that year that you all, the two of you think are illustrative of or, um, things to come. I think what stands out to me is really how consistent Justice Thomas has been. I mean, it's 30 years now. Uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, he has uh, confessed error in a couple of cases along the way. He said, you know, I, I, I thought about that again. And again, I think that kind of goes with his candor. Uh, but I think in terms of his methodological approach to judging, I think the headline is really how little he has changed. Because I think he came in, uh, even though he hadn't uh, faced a lot of these constitutional questions in specific areas, but with a pretty well-developed view of what the role of a judge should be in a democratic system. And I, I, again, I think 
the, the, the headline, frankly, in a world where we're always talking about evolving justices and all that, that, you know, he, I, I don't think he's really changed much from, from that very first term. You know, I, I agree with that. I mean, he's changed his position on certain things. Like early in the terms, there were dormant commerce clause cases, and he just kind of went along with the flow. And later he realized, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to make sense. It wasn't because he changed his methodology. It was just that it finally caught up, but th that there was something inconsistent. You know, I think what's probably most changed is something that um, uh, Judge Pryor uh, alluded to this morning, which is once you have a certain number of originalists on the court, all of a sudden you get originalist arguments being made to the court, and you have originalist research in the briefs and in the amicus briefs. And if you think back to 1991, we had almost none of that in the briefs that were filed at the court. And as law clerks, how are we going to figure it all out? Uh, the briefs now, you'd be crazy to file. And you, you can ask the Solicitor Generals who, the Solicitors General who speak in the next panel about this. You'd be crazy to file a brief in the Supreme Court now that on a constitutional issue where you didn't address the original meaning. But that wasn't, that wasn't really the norm back in 1991. Yeah. Um, so I agree with all of that. Um, maybe he didn't write any blockbuster originalist opinions right out of the, the gate, but he did a lot of things that year that were suggestive and, and very consistent with what he's been doing ever since. So um, he is a hawk on, he, he, he is eager to rethink things, but he's also a hawk on preservation. And so um, in, in one concurrence, he uh, called for a return to the original understanding of the Sixth Amendment, the Confrontation Clause, White versus Illinois. It wasn't raised. People tended not to raise arguments like that um, in that time. Um, but he put that on the table, and that later bore fruit in Crawford. Um, using originalism for defensive purposes. We had a case called Hudson versus McMillian, where um, case involved the extent to which the Eighth Amendment um, prohibits mistreatment of prisoners. The original understanding, uh, Boss thought, and he was clearly right on this, is that the Eighth Amendment protects punishments that are formally imposed for criminal offenses, not what happens to you in prison. Um, this case was the barnacle on the barnacle on the barnacle. Um, question was whether you need a significant injury um, in a, a beating case to make out an Eighth Amendment violation. And he said no, um, largely because, you know, while we were two or three steps removed from the original meaning and couldn't go all the way back to it in one step, the re requirement of a significant injury kind of narrowing the Eighth Amendment as a font of tort law in the prison context was at least more consistent or less inconsistent with the original meaning. And so that's how um, that's how he went. And the, the um, last thing I'll just put on the table is his, um, his vote in Casey. Um, he didn't write the opinions, the dissents, but he joined dissents just flat out saying Roe versus Wade is clearly wrong and it should be overruled, period, done. Um, not a lot of subtlety there. right? He could have said something narrower, like, oh, I'm not sure, but 
gosh, the Pennsylvania law could be upheld under an undue burden standard, so we don't need to consider anything broader. And I'm just, you know, contrast um, Justice Barrett's vote in Fulton, right? She's faced with a very major decision very early in her tenure about what to do with Smith versus Oregon, and she took a cautious approach, kind of um, doing the right thing for the case at hand and reserving the larger questions. Um, it was not um, a lot of that caution in the way the boss approached Casey. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's interesting on, on the evolution. I, I absolutely agree that his methodology has not changed, but where you do see an evolution is as the research improves, as he finds more out about it, whether it's from a paper with Greg in, a, in one of their classes or, or whether it's from an amicus brief or a party brief. Uh, so there's an evolution, exactly right. I, and Commerce Clause is a good example of that. Uh, and I find it more interesting how he sort of deals, again, with the situation where you can't go back to scratch, much like you said in the Hudson case. Uh, you see that in Commerce Clause cases all the time. There are some parts of the dormant negative commerce clause that might have fit under the, say, export-import clause, as he has said in Camp Newfoundland in his dissent. But unless you're going to revive that precedent when you dump the, the dormant commerce clause precedent, if you only do one or the other, you're left with an answer that is at odds with the original function of the Constitution. And so you have to take an interim step while you get there. And I think if you want to call that evolution, okay, he's still trying to get to the right place, but sometimes you can't get there all in one bite. Isn't there something similar on the um, privileges and immunities clause? I mean, he obviously is not a fan of substantive due process. And you know, again, it's easy to understand that since it's a contradiction in terms. But, but I mean, I guess I remember this was long after I clerked. He had an opinion kind of suggesting that the court made uh, you know, a, a wrong, took a wrong step, uh, I guess, back in the slaughterhouse cases when they said that the privileges and immunities clause was not a, a, a source of any substantive rights. And um, you know, I think he, he took that in a direction where he was, um, you know, th that might be more open-ended, but, but I guess in his view, it would not be because you would still look to history and tradition in terms of what are the privileges and immunities of citizenship. But maybe that, that's, I think, an interesting area to, you know, think about his jurisprudence. And again, his way of saying, even though the, the, the you know, due process clause is not the answer to these things. That's what gets us into this morass we call substantive due process with contradiction in terms. But maybe you know, th there's a more principled way, which is privileges and immunities, which is actually in the Constitution. I don't know if any. I don't, I don't think that's really gone anywhere, right? I mean, he's kind of said that, but I don't. You know, he he was the only justice in in uh, McDonald willing to right. rest and on that, a P and I has, theory. Has that gone anywhere in the lower courts or anything, or is it? Yeah. It's provoked a lot of academic writing, yeah. a lot of academic. In fact, there was a lot of discussion about it in, in one of the earlier panels okay. today, too. Yeah, so it's uh, any um, cases for cases from the later terms that you want to. So flag? yeah, if the if the conversation is sort of changing over, over time, you know, the, uh, I largely agree with Chris that that it's his record is largely marked by consistency. In fact, one of the I, get, I think common jokes about from later clerk classes is. If you ever have sort of a big case that you're working on and you go to the boss and sort of brief him on it, he's inevitably going to say, oh, I already wrote about that. See this opinion. We're, we're going to do that. He, he's, he is about methodological consistency without regard to pressure or changing you know, norms outside uh, the four corners of the law that he's presented with. I, I want to talk about this word evolution because I, I think to be more precise, 
there are situations where he has changed his views. It's not evolution. It's a re-engagement of the material. I frankly, maybe better than evolution, I would use the word humility. He appreciates that he is just a person who, you know, is like all human beings capable of revisiting something and realizing, ooh, you know, I, I didn't really fully read this part or I, I, did, I missed something and is willing to reevaluate. That's not evolution. That's just an understanding that, you know, people make mistakes. So I think, I think it was just last year he talked about uh, in a, in a decennial, uh, I think it was Baldwin VOS, we said, you know, I was involved in, in Brand X. As I think about it, maybe Brand X wasn't such a great idea. I don't think that's evolution. I think it's reconfronting the, the same things he confronted in Brand X, but seeing something new that he had missed before. So it's not a change at all. Uh, it's a uh, self real, you know, uh, 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 it's not evolution. I'll just put it that way. Fair enough. Um, let's do a compare and contrast between Justice Thomas and some other great originalists. So the most obvious one, of course, is Justice Thomas versus Justice Scalia. And the most obvious person to talk about that is um, someone who clerked for both. So Chris, you want to talk yeah. about uh, faint-hearted versus bloodthirsty? <laughs> you know, it, it, honestly, uh, those two men influenced my life in so many ways. And I'm so grateful to both of them. Uh, for having hired me as a law clerk. Um, and I learned so much from both of them in, in different ways. And, and, you know, I mean, Justice Scalia had been a professor. He had been head of OLC, he'd thought about a lot of these issues. Um, you know, Justice Thomas uh, did not have that same uh, hardcore legal background. I mean, he'd been the head of the EEOC. Uh, and, um, but again, uh, you know, he, he gets a lot of credit for uh, you know, having a vision of what what his role was, what is his job, and from the beginning, I don't think he's ever swerved on. Again, I think humility is part of the job. It's saying, you know, I don't believe I'm a philosopher king. I don't want to be a philosopher king. It's not right for me to be a philosopher king. Uh, you know, the, Justice. Um, you know, I think Justice Scalia. Uh, I think it was probably um, not as. Uh, bold in terms as Justice Thomas in terms of going after precedents. I think he was kind of more willing to uh, operate within the system. I think Justice Thomas, you know, takes special glee and sees it as his role on the court to be pointing out these foundational mistakes. Uh, and so, I mean, to me, that's probably the biggest uh, difference between them is that that Justice Thomas probably is just more willing to to highlight that. Again, they're, they're they're very different people in a lot of ways, uh, uh, but but you know both I think you know tried their best to come up with neutral, articulable principles for their uh, decisions, and and you know it's it's that that deserves a lot of our gratitude as citizens. You know, I would say that uh, if you compare Justice Thomas to uh, maybe some of the other justices, or, or maybe somebody like Judge Bork. Um, Justice Thomas rarely gives uh, pronouncements about the general theories of originalism uh, and, and specific meanings. What he is really interested is in an individual case, finding out what the right answer is in that case and really, really getting into the weeds. Um, a lot of people who talk about originalism are very interested in the overall theories and discussing that, but they never really make or evaluate specific originalist arguments. They're, 
they're they're interested in in the, the big picture of originalism and talking about that. Where what Justice Thomas is really really interested in is getting an individual case right and finding out the history on a specific point, uh, rather than proving a big theory or convincing other people of a big theory. And I would say that's probably his no, most that's distinctive. Good, that's aspect. A, he, he, Justice Scalia is definitely more academic, uh, and Justice Thomas, I think, has a very deep-seated aversion to big theories that try to explain everything. The other difference I thought between Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, apart from the, the ones you've mentioned, is it seemed like for Justice, Justice Scalia is very worried about maintaining a proper judicial role as well, and for him that creates a kind of independent, freestanding aversion to subjective standards and balancing tests that, you know, itself stands on its own bottom and drives some outcomes. And so if you contrast Scalia and Thomas on, say, the non-delegation doctrine, right? Justice Scalia cares a lot about separation of powers and says, of course, there has to be a line between legislative power and executive power, legislative power to pass statutes and executive power to promulgate regulations. You can't allow the second one to um, completely eviscerate the first one. But, and it's a big but, he can't find what he thinks is a judicially manageable standard to enforce that. And so he gives up and says, I'm just, the rule is there, but it's not judicially administrable. As opposed to Justice Thomas, who says, well, the, the, the rule is there, and therefore we courts have to do the best we can in, in enforcing it. And the other one that comes to mind, someone mentioned this earlier, is the P&I Clause and McDonald, right? And McDonald is about, there's a privilege as an immunity theory for incorporating the Second Amendment against the states, and there's a substantive due process theory. Justice Scalia thinks of this as, you know, judicial enforcement of unenumerated rights is unbounded, dangerous, leads to a Burgerfell. Like, I don't want to do that, and I'm not going to do that regardless of whether you call it substantive due process or privileges and immunities. Justice Thomas is thinking about it completely differently. He's going clause by clause, looking at the history. He thinks the history supports judicial enforcement of privileges and immunities, even if there aren't objective standards. And so he's he's all in on that. I, I agree. Uh, those are good distinctions, especially the Scalia's sort of tendency to sort of say, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? Are we going to toss out 50 years, 100 years of precedent? And a reluctance there. And so he is more likely to find Call it judicial modesty if you want. Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly the right answer, but judicial reticence to right. dive in between the other two branches, where Justice Thomas on occasion thinks modesty means finding something other than my own opinions to, to base a decision on. I think they have very different views of that. What I found interesting about the descriptions from the first time in particular, particularly the case-by-case -case description, is it echoed what Justice uh, Stevens described his view of himself as during one of these lunches that you know you all go on. Uh, 
And he viewed himself as a common law judge who looked at case by case answer, didn't look for big principles, didn't look for a rule. The difference, of course, is his common law model was, well, I get to decide whatever I want because I am the law, versus Justice Thomas's model, case by case, is I get to look for somebody else to give me the answer because I'm not the law. I'm merely the implementer of it. Uh, but So I think you know, if we're comparing and contrasting, no originalist, of course, Justice Stevens, but an interesting, nonetheless, right. methodological overlap, yet underlying difference in assumptions. To go back to the sort of this where Scalia and Thomas diverge, I think the judicial modesty uh, theory is is not a bad one, but I do think it doesn't explain everything. Uh, in the case I most remember, at least in this regard, is is Hamdan, right? Where essentially there was the the majority opinion. Hamdan, Hamdi, right? Um, I forget which one is it. It's the one where basically Scalia and Stevens are on Hamdi. one pole. Detaining, that, detaining the, yeah. the... They all blend together at this point. Yeah. Um, I, live, I litigated. This, it's Hamdi. It's Hamdi. <laughs> believe me. This one's and, personal for him. Yeah, okay. um, but, you know, you had, you know, Scalia and Thomas are, you know, genuine good faith originalists. Uh, you have the, the majority of the court where it's, you know, will allow detention, but only under a Matthews versus Eldridge sort of fact pattern or uh, standards. And then you had the two poles. And the two poles are... Uh, C.T. and Scalia Stevens, if I recall, yeah, are the two extreme. So, uh, and if, if from a, from a modesty standpoint, Scalia is the most interventionist, right? He's basically he and Stevens are saying you can't do this at all without some sort of congressionally set out statute. And C.T. is, you know what? You're the president. You do what you want. That's what the commander in chief. President, is. there's a war going on. It, exactly. The government so wins. If the, if modesty is our theory, then that actually answers it exactly backwards, exactly incorrect. To my mind, it may actually just be as simple as. Originalism is, to me, just asking the right questions. It's not necessarily telling you what the answers are. And originalists can, in good faith, simply disagree. One of the, my favorite things that I did before becoming a judge was debating John Eastman on issues, where he and I genuinely are trying to be good originalists. But you know what? Sometimes there are ambiguities or, 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 or different uh, authorities out there uh, during the originalist era, and all you can do is do the best job that you can. Sometimes Scalia and Thomas disagree in the same way. Let's talk about how influential the justice has been um, on the court and in the larger world. So the standard hostile account from the left is he's he's a voice in the wilderness. He writes all this eight one, you know, he's he's off by himself, and not a lot of people are following him, and certainly not uh, majorities aren't following him in his major pronouncements. Um, Anyone want to take that on? He said that about Rehnquist, too, uh, back in the 70s when he was the lone dissenter. And uh, look, I think there, again, it, I think it goes back to this question about, you know, the, the Brennan model versus, let's say, the Scalia-Thomas model. One is more, you know, let's get the right result uh, and try to cobble together five votes. You know, neither Scalia or Thomas had any interest in that because they were very interested in in... The principle, and so there really wasn't much room for for compromising. But you know, m my sense is that over the long run, uh, when you have a, a a coherent view of of how to judge case, and and you're willing to go back to first principles, I would think that that encourages people to think that way, and and to to, to kind of realize, look, let's not just talk about the barnacles. Let's go back and talk about the ship. And you know, it, it's not something that happens overnight. Uh, but, you know, I, I, let's see. I mean, I think, you know, Justice Thomas from the very beginning, I mean, we, we were there his first term, and, you know, I think 
he kind of had the approach, like, look, I'm going to be here a long time. Uh, and, you know, he, he got on very young, 43 years old. So he's still, you know, a relatively young man at, at 73. And, you know, he could still, you know, be influential for, for many years to come. And I think he will be. And, and I think, I mean, th that is, I think having a coherent jurisprudence gives you a long-lasting legacy that goes beyond just the individual cases. I mean, you guys would know better than I, being on, on lower courts now and, and seeing, you know, w what, what happened with all those, you know, dissents. Did, did any of them ever bear fruit? Uh, you know, uh, I think it's important to remember, as Chris points out, that uh, we're not at the stopping point. We're, this, we're celebrating Justice Thomas's first 30 years right. on the court. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was in the earlier panel that uh, Professor Garnett and Professor McConnell uh, brought up the uh, anonymous speech uh, case. And I, I can't think of a better example where it was eight to one with only Thank Justice you. Thomas uh, saying anonymous speech should be uh, protected. Uh, and lo and behold, it switches. And in dissent, uh, Justice Sotomayor says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This used to be eight to one. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And said, exactly. And so uh, I think in the next 30 years, we'll see if some of the seeds that have been planted bear similar fruit. Yeah, I agree, I, I agree strongly with that. I had anonymous speech on my list. Um, another another example is Second Amendment, right? Um, he wrote in Prince in the mid-90s, he, he dropped the seed that the Second Amendment might be an individual right in an era when that was probably... Um, you know, outside the Overton window, like not that not a lot of reasonable conservatives were saying that, and it prompted a lot more work. It prompted OLC to do an opinion early in Bush 43, and ultimately led to Heller. Well, and I think, uh, you know, when, when you ask how influential he is, it can't only be among his immediate colleagues. It's among the law schools, it's among future judges, it's among academics who then take those seeds and do the research to back up the history and whatever is needed. Uh, and you're right, he's patient and he has the time to do it. Uh, I think that's really where you see his tremendous influence about how academic research, even on the left now, is about originalist theories. And they're trying to counter any given result, but they're still using, or trying to use, or attempting to use the methodologies that really are driven by his his writings. It is shocking when you go back and you read cases from the 70s and, and early 80s, uh, you know, just, just how far the law has come uh, in, in the last 30 years, or maybe how far it had strayed, let's say, between, you know, 19, you know, early 50s and, and the early 80s. I mean, there, there was a whole generation there that came of age when it was kind of very loosey-goosey. And I think, you know, Justice Scalia played a huge role in that. Uh, and Justice Thomas is continuing to play that role. And I think, you know, people, people want judges who are, you know, doing their level best to decide the cases, you know, in a methodologically pure manner. Now, I guess, you know, to some extent, it's one of the frustrations I have that, that a lot of people view the court as just, you know, about results. And say, well, Justice Thomas is, you know, just voting, you know, a Republican way because that's the way the results come out. No, I mean, it's a, it's a methodological thing. And I think ultimately, you know, methodological uh, uh, consistency has a lot to be said for it. Uh, and, you know, I wish that there was a more uh, honest 
discussion of this, particularly in the press. I think the press does a terrible misservice to the country, disservice to the country, uh, by always portraying Supreme Court decisions in kind of uh, naked partisan political terms when, you know, I don't think that's what's going on at all. Uh, but, you know, again, I think Justice Thomas will be, uh, you know, remembered along with Justice Scalia as one of the people who turned around this ship. Uh, anyone want to put on the table your um, view, your favorite CT originalist opinion or greatest CT originalist opinion or two or three? It's a long list, but. I, I mean, my favorite only because it was the year I was there. <laughs> you and worked on it. No, I didn't. I, I honestly didn't. <laughs> I absolutely didn't. I, I disclaim any credit or responsibility or however you want to think of it, is the camp's decision because I, I think, and I don't even agree with a lot of it. <laughs> That's the funny thing is that I actually disagree with big chunks of that decision. Um, but I love the fact that he went back to something as obscure as the Export-Import Clause. It's, it's why, it's one thing to talk about the originalism, something we're all fighting about all the time. It's another thing to sort of say, and by the way, you sort of totally screwed up this tiny little clause that nobody really thinks about anymore. Uh, that's why it's my favorite, not for the outcome. Not, I, I disagree with his analysis of the Commerce Clause, by the way, in that case. I think it is exclusive, at least to some degree. <laughs> he doesn't, or at least he didn't at the time. Um, we'll see if evolving uh, research, not evolving standards, but evolving research could perhaps persuade him otherwise. I, I don't know, but uh, th that's the one I'd put on. Uh, the print, you mentioned Prince, and I love that footnote in Prince. Yeah. Uh, hard to not like that, but I don't think it quite fits the bill. I'll give you a relatively obscure one from my own personal experience, which is when I was a litigator, I was involved in a case called Eastern Enterprises. And the general issue is civil retroactivity resulting in massive monetary liabilities for coal companies. If you signed a coal wage agreement in the 1940s under this 1992 statute, you had this crushing liability imposed on you for lifetime health benefits for every miner in the industry. And the court kind of tied itself, there were five votes solidly for the proposition that this was unconstitutional, but they tied themselves in knots figuring out what the, th what the theory was. And four of them, including Justice Thomas, applied regulatory takings law, which is a, you know, a little bit um, ad hoc. Justice Kennedy thought that um, regulatory takings was a bit made up and ad hoc, so he applied substantive due process. <laughs> <laughs> and and CT, he, he goes along with regulatory takings, but it's not entirely satisfying. And so he just drops this snapper concurrence saying, you know, well, the real problem here is um, that we don't apply the ex post facto clause to civil legislation. And in an appropriate case, I'd be willing to reconsider Calder versus Bull decided in the 1790s before Marbury versus Madison. And you know, there it is for anyone who wants to run with it. It's hard to beat that one, Greg. <laughs> um, all right, the last thing, oh, go ahead. I'll just, I'll, I'll, 
in terms of your sort of favorite opinions, uh, I'll, I'll do somewhat of a uh, maybe an unconventional uh, approach. You know, obviously, I think everybody knows that the Supreme Court's job is not just to decide cases, but also has the feature, unlike our courts, they get to decide what cases they want to decide. And so, to my mind, you know, Justice Thomas has, in a series of opinions, uh, written dissents uh, from denials of cert, uh, urging his colleagues to take on cases that, obviously, they decided not to. Um, and I think there's a lot of, it, it's, 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 you know, getting originalism right, but actually being even willing to confront the question in the first place. He's done this in the Second Amendment in a, re a repeated series of dissents uh, uh, recently in, the, in terms of the prerogative of state legislatures to set election laws rather than governors or uh, judges. Uh, in the, I think it's a, I don't even know how to pronounce the word, DeGraven something or other from Pennsylvania. He, he wrote a, a, a dissent there. I mentioned the Brand X case where he wanted to revisit his own precedent, but the, but the court wasn't willing to go along yet. Um, so a lot of, to the extent that the court uh, uh, isn't taking on certain cases that Justice Thomas is urging, I think that's actually a, an important area of jurisprudence that, that uh, beyond the merits docket. The last thing I wanted to do before we run out of time is just um, share with you a passage from a recent article by Professor McGinnis and Professor Rappaport, who are very distinguished originalist scholars, and invite the panel to comment. I will just say in advance, I have no comment other than amen. <laughs> for, for originalists, Clarence Thomas has a claim to be the greatest justice of all time. No other justice approaches the breadth and comprehensiveness of his investigation of the meaning of our fundamental law. He has pursued this ideal of justice without being deterred by much scurrilous criticism. A justice for all seasons must have sound convictions and the courage to follow them. Clarence Thomas has both. Let me follow up on that, because I think, you know, particularly this panel of ex-clerks, I think it is important to recognize a personal dimension here. We've talked a lot about theoretical things. And I think one of the things that really makes Justice Thomas unique is his absolute disinterest in what other people think or say about him. Uh, and that's something not to be uh, underestimated, uh, particularly on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, it's a natural human reaction. I mean, we like positive feedback. Uh, and, you know, he has, I think, probably more than anybody else I've met in my life, uh, he, he's comfortable in his own skin, and he's not looking for approval from anybody. He doesn't care if he gets invited to, you know, an embassy for dinner or to the opera or to a law school to give a speech. And, you know, he has faced all manner of indignities that I think uh, others have not. And I think, you know, in a sense, that has given him a certain freedom to do these things and, and to call them as he sees them. But I, I think we can't underestimate that that is something that most people don't possess. I mean, most people, I think, the, the urge to get along and to, to uh, kind of win popularity contests uh, means a lot. And you know, I think it's one of the sources of his greatness that he uh, is really disinterested in that. And it's something I think each one of us can, can really uh, testify to, uh, and and I think it's important that we highlight that because it's something, frankly, that's so rare in our public life. Greg, I would say I'm into that also, and I would uh, also ask just this one question: how, how did he get there? He got there just one case at a time. 
So I'll, I'll finish up, John. Thanks. Uh, we are now out of time, so um, let me just thank all my panelists for a wonderful presentation. Yeah.